Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is a guest, Keith Giles. Keith is an author, copywriter, activist, and servant of Jesus living in Orange County, California. And since 2003, he and his family have been part of a house church that gives 100% of all offerings to the poor in their community. He can be found at keithgiles.com. Keith was on our podcast way back when we did our 10th episode, and we talked about his book, Jesus Untangled. And he is here today to talk about his latest book, Jesus Unbound. And if you stay tuned till the end of the podcast, we might get into a little bit of friendly debate over uh, some of the things that, uh, you know, Keith and I talk about on social media. So, uh, Keith, so your book titles are very interesting. Jesus Untangled and Jesus Unbound. Why does Jesus keep getting tangled and bound? (laughs) I, uh, that's a great question. Uh, well, I'll just put, I'll just say it's not his fault. I think, uh, unfortunately, we uh, tend to be the ones to get him either tangled in our politics or bound up into a book. Uh, and what I've been trying to do is, in, in my books, is to first shine a light on it, and second, uh, either explain how we got this way and maybe hopefully how we can get out of it and so that we can really have a, a clear connection to Christ that isn't uh, tangled or bound in anything. Yeah. So, so your latest book, Jesus Unbound, give us a little bit of a taste of what, what you're aiming for there. Cause your, your first book, Jesus Untangled was all about disentangling Jesus from, from politics and from mm-hmm. being, being kind of abused, uh, in the political sphere. Yeah. Well, um, so the new book, Jesus Unbound, the subtitle is liberating the word of God from the Bible. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do ultimately, uh, is to Again, identify that sometimes we as Christians can have our love for the Bible eclipse Jesus. And um, even to the point where I've had conversations with Christians who will say, um, they'll make statements that honestly I could say amen to if they just change the word Bible to Jesus, uh, then I would say, yes, you're right. But, but they'll attribute to the Bible uh, the properties that, that do not belong to the book. The book won't change your life. The book won't, you know, make the world a better place. The book won't, uh, you know, solve our social problems or whatever. Uh, the book won't do any of those things. It's just a book. Uh, but it points us, the book points us to uh, a person who is Jesus. And yes, Jesus can make a difference. Jesus can change our life. Jesus can transform our society and transform our, our communities and those kinds of things. Um, so in the book, Jesus Unbound, I'm just trying to um, again, point out something that I think we have put between us and Jesus and identify it and then hopefully remove it and put it in its proper place so that we can have a direct connection to Christ. You know, when you say it's just a book, you, some people might get the impression that you're kind of dishonoring the scripture by not 
elevating it to like, well, it's the book or it's the <laughs> the holy book, which which I'm sure you would say it's holy. You start off, though, in your book about how much you love the Bible. So why if it's just a book, why do you love it so much? Well, yeah, good question. So, yeah, I do. Uh, and I did start off the book in the beginning talking about why I love the Bible, because in some ways to establish that, yes, I do love the Bible and my book is not intended at all to bash the Bible in any way. But in some ways, I, I, I started off the book to um, sort of soften and cushion what was going to come later in the book, because I do get a little bit critical of, of certain passages in the Bible, and I start to question uh, some things that I know might um, might be controversial for them. But, but to answer your question, you know, why do I love the Bible? Uh, I mean, I, I became a Christian around nine years old. I've always loved reading, and I started reading the Bible, uh, and I ended up reading through the Bible several times as a young man between that time and, you know, high school and then into college. I do love it. I study it all the time. I, I mean, I'm constantly podcasting, blogging, writing books, you know, doing speaking events, and it's always, you know, about the Bible or these things from the Bible. So I definitely love the Bible very much. And I do respect the Word of God, the, the scriptures very much. But the Word of God, the Word of God isn't a book. And I do, I'm trying to stress this. That's why my subtitle says liberating the Word of God from the Bible. Why don't you go ahead and explain what you mean by that? I mean, is this the difference between a capital W word equals Jesus and lowercase w word equals the Bible? What, what do you mean by uh, the word of God? I guess it's probably helpful to unpack that a little bit. Right. Yeah. So I think we we very commonly as Christians, and I did this all the time myself, um, you know, as a young man, uh, even just even a few years ago, I would very, very readily just say word of God when I met the Bible. But if you really look, here's the crazy thing. If we look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't call itself the Word of God. It actually, most of the time when that phrase, Word of God, is used, it's either, especially in the New Testament, a reference to Christ, um, that Jesus is the Word of God who was, you know, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, um, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now we know that, that if we abide in the Word, the Word abides in us, and that Christ is abiding in us, He and the Father are making their home in us. And so the word of God is Christ and he's alive in us as followers of Christ. Now, the Bible, I should also say the phrase word of God is also sometimes used to reference the gospel message. So the me the spoken message of the gospel is sometimes also called the word of God. But the Bible itself doesn't point us to the Bible. This is one of the key things I'm trying to say in my book. The Bible doesn't point us to the Bible. So if we're going to read the Bible, if we're going to study the Bible, if we're going to believe the Bible, if we're going to hold the Bible up in this in this you know high position, a high view of Scripture, then then we should follow it because the Scripture doesn't point us to itself. The Scripture points us to Christ. And again, that's all I'm trying to get us to realize is that the the book is wonderful, but it's like a map. It's like having a map to Las Vegas that we read and study and, oh, look at the shows and look at the look at these restaurants and, wow, there's this comedian and, oh, there's this concert. Wow, this is wonderful. And then we fold the map up, put it in our pocket, and we never actually do anything about it. We never actually experience all the things that the map is, is telling us. And so I'm wanting us to move from information about Jesus into an experience uh, with Christ. 
So how do we know Jesus? I mean, we today read about Jesus from either from the Gospels or from the Bible or from a book that refers to the Bible. You know, we might hear about Jesus from a parent growing up or a relative, and we may never sort of like touch or read the Bible, and we could still learn about Jesus on that level. But all of that information that we have in the 21st century is because we have the Bible. So, you know, your book does talk about, you know, how do we know Jesus? So, so tell us, like, how, how do we get to know Jesus? Well, yeah, great. That's a great question. And then the book really does go into a lot of detail on that. Um, well, Again, we certainly, most of us begin our understanding of this guy, Jesus, um, by either, you know, reading the Bible and uh, having information, right? So we know, we learn things about Jesus like, well, uh, he was born of a virgin and he um, was, was born in Bethlehem and, um, you know, his father was a carpenter and his mother's name was Mary and, um, you know, all these kind of details and, and sort of trivia uh, information about, which is good. We need to know information about Jesus. Um, and the Bible, of course, is wonderful for that. We can certainly learn a lot of uh, key information about Jesus. But I, I would contend that uh, that's not even the kind of information or knowing uh, that the Bible talks about. Like when Jesus says, he says, you know, this is eternal life, uh, that they would know you. He's, talking, he's praying to the Father. He says that they would know you and your son whom you have sent. The word know that he use, uses there is gnosko and in the Greek. And it's not the word for information. It's not the word for having, you know, knowledge in our brain. It's the, it's the gnosko is a, is a word that you would use to say that a man knew his wife and she conceived. And so it's exactly that kind of knowledge that Jesus is talking about in the Bible. That fr so from the Bible, we learn that the kind of knowing that we are, uh, encouraged to to pursue by Jesus is this again this abiding connection with him through the Holy Spirit that we don't just know information about him but we know him and the Father in such an intimate way that it conceives something within us and what it conceives is this new life of Christ so that we now become these these uh, new creatures right Paul talks about this all the time that uh, that the gospel has this transformational element. Uh, and I use the illustration, not in the book, but I use this sometimes when I'm talking to people like, you know, I could be the world's leading authority on Kobe Bryant. I could be a walking encyclopedia. I could know everything about like, what's his middle name and where was he born and what was his favorite color and what was his first toy he got at Christmas and his names of his pets. And, you know, I could go, I could just have all this incredible information about Kobe Bryant. But if Kobe Bryant walked in the room, Kobe would not say, hey, Keith, what's up? Because I don't know Kobe Bryant. I know a lot of stuff maybe about him, and I don't. I'm just using it as an illustration. But uh, in other words, I could not I could get all kinds of information about someone and never actually know them. And I think that's the tragedy, is if all we do is study information about Jesus, but we never actually know him. And again, that now becomes something a little more experiential and spiritual, um, maybe mystical, uh, something that we would actually have a connection with the divine in a very real way that, that transcends mere information. Well, it's almost like the difference between you know who, you know, in, in this case, Kobe Bryant or, or Jesus, either way, like, you know their name, 
All right. But what's important is that they know your name. Right. You know, that Jesus can call you his child and that you can you can have that relationship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And so the relationship with God, I mean, Christians talk about, you know, having a personal relationship with God, which in in one sense is not in the Bible, but it's also kind of it's kind of throughout on, you know, the idea of dwelling with God and being being in God's presence. I mean, it's kind of it's just kind of our way of describing that we we know God. We know Jesus. We don't just know about or about God or about Jesus. Yeah, you know, I would I would say this. I think it's actually I think it's actually so key to the entire uh, experience. Like the whole new covenant hinges on this idea that we each of us individually can know God. I mean, Jeremiah 31, 31, uh, which is where, you know, we first in the Old Testament scriptures get this idea where God says, I will make a covenant in these days. The day is coming. I will make a covenant that will not be like the old covenant. And he says, I'll put my law within your heart and I will write it and you will I will be your God and you will be my people. And then he says, no one will teach uh, one another. Each man will, will not teach his, his brother or his neighbor and say to them, you should know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Uh, and so every single time we drink the cup and, and eat the bread and share communion together, we are declaring that new covenant has been established and we are partakers of that covenant. And part of that covenant is that each one of us individually would know God ourselves. And again, so I, I think it's very crucial. And I do think it's actually something that we are explicitly told in the scriptures that we are expected to have a direct connection with God. Well, and that brings us to the idea that something that you talk about, you know, we've, we've you've talked right now about information about God or about Jesus. And in your book, one of the t- chapters title is the gospel information or transformation. And, you know, there is the message of the gospel on the one hand, the pronouncement that Jesus is Lord. Uh, but then there's also the transformation that happens when someone encounters the gospel and encounters the living Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think if there's anything that's really missing in our world today, it's that transformational piece. Uh, again, that's what concerns me, as I think we've sort of settled in many ways in the Christian church, uh, certainly in America. We've settled for religion. We've settled for doctrines and theology. Um, and we just kind of stopped there. And we haven't moved on to that very crucial next step, which is the transformational piece. Uh, that the gospel is intended to, first of all, to change me into someone who loves and forgives and serves the way Jesus did more and more and more. And that as I'm uh, experiencing that kind of transformation, the intention is that that transformation process would spread and begin in people around me. Uh, and um, I think the fact that we don't see a whole lot of that kind of transformation or the fruit of that transformation in, in the Christian church in America, which is kind of sad. Uh, But that's also the reason why we're not having an impact on our culture and our society. You know, I've often wondered if we don't talk about the transformative gospel, we don't use that word of transformation very often because we've kind of assigned it to the realm of the conversion process. You know, you're outside the kingdom and then you're inside the kingdom and that's the transformation that happens. And um, you know, yeah, we believe in discipleship and we believe in sanctification, but we don't use the powerful word like transformation to describe what happens 
as we walk with God through our Christian lives. Um, I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that, you know, the the idea that the gospel itself oh, yeah. is transformed, but because I know that the gospel transforms me and I've been following Jesus since I was, I mean, ever, I mean, I grew up following Jesus. I made a sort of profession of faith mm -hmm. as a very young child. Uh, so, but I still know that the gospel transforms me, someone who has heard it over and over and over again. Yeah, well, dude, you, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, I, I say amen to everything you just said. I was raised Southern Baptist, and well, conversion's like that day you prayed the prayer. You remember you came, that Sunday you came yeah. forward? Yeah, I did that twice, because at age five, I yeah, didn't remember that I did it at age four. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but but see, I, I mean, and let, let me I'll be honest, I wish conversion was like a light switch where it was just one time, and you went down, and you, you did the ABCD, and then boom, we threw a switch, and now ding. You're converged, you converted. But it doesn't work that way. That, that is not at all what we see in Scripture, and that's not at all, I think, what we, we should communicate to people. Because discipleship just means that you are, like we were saying, you're, you're daily um, experiencing this transformational presence of Christ that is slowly, you know, uh, making you more like him. But it takes time. It'll take your entire life. So uh, this is, like you said, this is also the reason why discipleship is usually treated like some other thing over here that's optional on the side. It's a class we do on Wednesday nights with the pastor. And at the end, when you finish your workbook, you get a certificate and you can check the box. And now you're finished. You took a discipleship class and, you know, over the next four weeks or something. Uh, and it's like a class or something. But again, that's not what discipleship is either. Like discipleship is... Every moment of every day that you are su submitting your life and your will and your to Christ and you're allowing him, you know, to lead you and, and teach you and change you uh, the way you think and the way you act and the way you respond to people. Um, and, and that's the way it's supposed to work. Right. This is the this is the abiding piece of it where Jesus says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And then he says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, and so, again, that's the that's the depressing thing is that if we're not engaged in that abiding process, that daily transformational dependence upon Christ, then we're we're not equipped to do anything. In fact, actually, we can't really accomplish much at all for the kingdom. The sad thing is we can do all kinds of stuff and we do lots of stuff, but it may not bear any fruit, real fruit, lasting fruit for the kingdom. And I don't just mean accomplishing big things and having a big successful ministry or church, I mean bearing fruit in our own personal lives that we actually do experience this change of heart where we're more forgiving and more patient and more loving and more kind and more giving and, uh, you know what I mean, like the fruit of the Spirit. That's, that's, again, the piece that's missing. We have to get back to that. That's got to become, again, the most important thing for us uh, as followers of Jesus. See, you're bringing up the Bible again, Keith. That's that's what your that's yeah, what your critics well, might say to you. It's like you can't say anything about following Jesus or discipleship without bringing up something that's in the Bible. So how how does the Bible actually influence and and where does that work within our discipleship process? Yeah, well, yeah. Look, I do use the Bible. Like I said, I do love the Bible. I think the Bible's very um, very helpful, you know, for us. But I talked about this in, in a, the second chapter of my previous book, Jesus Untangled, which I know we, we may touch on a little bit later, because the second chapter of Jesus Untangled is where I sort of outlined there's sort of two major perspectives uh, of the way we approach Scripture. Typically, most Christians, and again, I did this most of my life, 
take a flat Bible approach, which is to say that every verse of Scripture in the Bible is equal to every other verse of Scripture in the Bible. So you have a very flat Bible. Um, but I no longer take that perspective. It's, uh, and I didn't know this until much later. I sort of discovered that, oh, there were these other people that had similar thoughts that I, that I started developing, and they were called Anabaptists. And the more I studied the Anabaptists, I was like, well, oh my gosh, they, they believe all the same stuff I did. I didn't even know there was this group of people. But the Anabaptist position um, was more of a Jesus-centered position, where uh, it doesn't take a flat Bible position. It takes the position that Christ, that Jesus, he is our, he's our everything, really. He's the lens through which we understand who the Father is. He's the lens through which we read Scripture. This is why Paul says that, he says, to this day, whenever we read the Old Testament Scriptures, the Old Covenant, that a veil covers our eyes, and that only in Christ is that veil removed. And again, I think the best, the best illustration we have for the way Christ is the way we should look at Scripture, we should read Scripture again through the lens of Christ, is the, what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. That, uh, you know, Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. He's glorified in their midst, and suddenly Moses and Elijah are standing there with him. But it's not a mistake. It's not, an, it's not accidental or arbitrary that it's Moses and Elijah. Moses stands for the law. Elijah stands for the prophets. And Peter makes a mistake that I think flat Bible Christians make. Uh, Peter says, let's build three tabernacles, right? Let's, let's elevate Jesus and Moses and Elijah to the same level, and let's, let's uh, you know, put them all three on the same level. He thinks what he's doing is he's complimenting Christ, right? He's saying, Jesus, you're just as good, you're just as great, you have just as much authority as Moses and Elijah. But the Father's response to Peter's mistaken sentiment is to remove Moses, the law, to remove Elijah, the prophets, and then he says, this is my son, listen to him. And so that should be the way we approach the scriptures. We listen to Christ. We first, again, it starts with abiding in him. We have to not just know information about Jesus. That's not what it's, what it's about. We begin to abide in Christ. We begin to know him. We begin to, we begin to hear his voice. We begin to be transformed in his presence daily, you know, more and more and more. We learn to hear his voice. And, and the more we begin to know Christ, the better we know Christ through this experiential connection with God through the Holy Spirit. And then we can go back and understand the, all the scriptures, really, that not just the Old Testament, but even the New Testament. We can see it clearly now because we know who Jesus is. If we know who Jesus is, we know who the Father is. And if we know who Jesus and the Father are, then now we can discern the right way to understand the whole Bible. So you, you said you grew up Southern Baptist and I grew up in a similar uh, upbringing. And for us, the practices or habits of discipleship were about reading the Bible, pretty much encouraged daily and and prayer. Aside from that, I mean, when you, you talk about cultivating this relationship with Jesus, I think I use the word cultivate, not you, but having this relationship with Jesus, abiding with Christ, knowing Christ. What does that look? I mean, you can share with us any you know personal habits you might have about this. What does that look like? You know, when I wake up tomorrow morning, does that mean that I do meditation and reflect on the scripture? I mean, what 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 might this look like? Because I think you know we can all all as Christians, 
we, we often talk about how, you know, we want to have a relationship with God and we're working on it and things like that. But, you know, sometimes we really want somebody to kind of share with us, well, here's what's been working for me. And here's how I've become closer to Jesus. Here's how I've, I know Jesus better. Share with us. What, what do you have? You know, I used to kind of subscribe to this whole idea of having a quiet time every morning and spending half an hour or an hour, if you could, if you could do it, um, in prayer or reading a chapter of the scriptures or journaling or whatever. And and there's a place for that. I'm not saying don't do that. But for me, um, it reached a point where I started feeling like, again, I was just sort of putting God, like God was only sitting on my couch, you know, at seven o'clock in the morning for 30 minutes. And then I would go to work and leave him there. Uh, and I don't think that's the right way we should think of it. Because he was with you the so whole day, me, whether you realized it or not. Right, right of course. <laughs> right. So honestly, for me, what I've been doing lately is just trying to to honestly wrap my brain around and then and to experience the reality that that Christ really is, you know, he is abiding with me. Like he he will really never leave me or forsake me. He is with me all the time. He's as close to me as my own breath and my own heartbeat. And so, yes, I do experience him maybe more intensely if I'm spending some time in prayer or if, let's say with our, our church family and we're spending some time in worship or in silence. Uh, our, our house church group spends a lot of time lately in silence. We'll sit sometimes half an hour uh, in silence. Uh, and just really what we're doing is realizing the truth, which is that Jesus is, he's there, he's in the midst. He's with the, he's, he's not only alive in each of us, but he's certainly present with us when we gather in his name, the way he said. And so uh, it's just been, I've been trying to just um, experience and be aware, to make myself aware of the presence of Jesus with me all the time, not just again when I'm at church, not just when I'm intentionally praying or reading the Bible, but when I'm in my car or I'm in the grocery store or I'm, you know, uh, in a meeting at work or something like he's, he never leaves me. He's always there. My my thing has been trying to break out of that compartmentalized way of thinking of, well, God is, uh, God, I'll meet you over there, or God, you're in that building, or God, you're in that service, or God, you're in that quiet time. He might be, I mean, I hope he is, sure. He, I, I, I really hope he would be. But um, no more so than he is in every mundane, ordinary moment. And can I, can I real quick give you an example of that? Yeah, please. Just I think, again, I'm going to go to the Bible as an example. So, there, you know, there's a story in, this, in the Old Testament where uh, Jacob, who I don't think really almost ever got it. Uh, anyway, he has a dream. And in the dream, heaven is open and there's a ladder and the angels are ascending and descending from heaven. And, uh, you know, God, God speaks to him in the dream and says, Jacob, I am with you wherever you go. Uh, I will be with you and I'll go ahead of you and all this stuff and I will bless you and blah, blah, blah. So Jacob wakes up and what Jacob says is, oh, my gosh. God was in this place and I did not know it. And then he builds an altar in that spot as if God was only in that spot. And then he leaves. And I think, again, that's sort of what we do with this sort of quiet time mentality. What God said to Jacob was, Jacob, I'm with you all the time. I'm with you wherever you go. I'm never going to leave you. And yet Jacob wakes up and says, wow, God was in this spot. And he make a, made, a, made a mark on the ground and said, yep, God was right in this spot. And then he walked away like God wasn't still with him. You know what I mean? And so I, I think we just should learn that lesson of saying, don't be like that. 
recognize God has said, I'm always with you, and we don't leave him behind. He's not in this holy place at a holy time. Uh, he's, he's with us always. Hey folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. One of the things that you talk about in your book is about doing Bible study and how everybody has access to the Holy Spirit, has access to Jesus. And you, you kind of downplay the need for a teacher sort of like in the traditional aspect of like there's this pastor of a group that is always the person that gets up in front and, you know, expounds the word of God, expounds the scripture to people and they sit and listen and take it in. And I understand that there's a lot of issues with that model. Um, but on the one hand, and, and I'm totally with you in a lot of respects with like, yeah, we all have equal access to God. We have equal access to Jesus. There's, there's that, there's no hierarchy on, on the one hand, but I've kind of always grown up with this sort of like, but yeah, but there's also an issue of competency. Like there are some people who, who actually do know the Greek, who that doesn't mean that they're better than anybody mm -hmm. else. It doesn't mean that they know more about the scripture. It doesn't mean that they've walked with Jesus any better, but is it, where's the right. place for, I mean, is the Bible study just sort of a free for all? You just take turns or is it like, it, where's the place, <laughs> where's the place for expertise and, and competency and gifts and talents and all of that? How does that play? I mean, you've been part of a house church, so maybe you've kind of wrestled through this and you don't just, I, I'm mm -hmm. guessing you don't just have a theoretical answer for me. Right. Yeah. So, um, well, I would say, you know, yeah, of course, if someone has studied and, and they have some wisdom to share from that place, of course, we, you know, we should be open to that. Uh, I think, again, my, my concern, like you said, is that most churches, that that's all it is. It's like, so there's this one guy, and he's the one who's done all the studying, and he has all the training, and, and the rest of us just sit, sit quietly and, um, you know, soak it up like sponges and then get on our car and drive home, and no one talks to anybody about what we learned or what he said or even questions any of it, right? Like, to me, that's not a very good formula for growth. Uh, and in fact, by the way, that's not at all what the scriptures say. Let's go back to the scriptures. You know, the whole idea of what we call the fivefold ministry, you know, it's like the, those apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, right? What that scripture says is that those are the people that do all the ministry in the body. But what it says is that those people equip the people for everybody else for the ministry in the body. And so it's the it's the one another's piece that I think we're missing. And again, my experience in house church for the last 11 years uh, has been enriched by the fact that I don't teach. I do not give a sermon. I don't do a Bible study. Um, and so every single one of us in the body is encouraged when we get together to just share what is God saying to you? What is God speaking to you? What is he t teaching you about? What Or what questions do you have? You might come not with something to, to teach, but with something to ask. And the, but then all of us together are going to have a discussion or, or, or try to, you know what I mean, share with one another about what, what, what's going on. And so I talk about it like this, uh, and it's taken me a while to develop this. You know, if, if what we were doing when we come together as a body of Christ, it, it, when we come together, if what we were discussing was something like how to repair motorcycles, well, then it would be really important that one of us had studied how to fix motorcycles, because then the rest of us could learn how to fix motorcycles. But that's not what's happening when we come together as a body. 
we're not only listening to one person who studied this topic and knows it. I mean, all not only do all of us have some experience with Christ when we come together. In other words, Christ should be uh, our focus and following him and knowing him better should be our focus. Well, we all have some knowledge and experience of Christ. So all of us are encouraged to share what we know about Christ, not just only one person. And then I would say that here's the other thing. The difference as well in, the, in that analogy of the motorcycle repair thing is when we gather as the body of Christ, we actually have the author of the book in the room. You know I'm saying? Uh, it's not like, oh, we're only dependent upon this one teacher who studied a lot of stuff or knows a lot of, you know, interesting things about Greek or Hebrew or, or whatever. The author of the book himself, the creator, not only just the author of that book, the author of life, the creator of the universe, he's there too. Again, it's, it's recognizing the actual presence of Christ always with us, and we can hear his voice. And he is more than capable of speaking to us. Uh, we have to, though, put ourselves in a posture where we're able to listen and we're willing to listen. And um, one of the things that helps that is that if he does speak to us and he does sort of ask us to, I don't know, go talk to that person over there or go encourage this person over here or forgive that guy at work who bothered you or whatever, that we would actually obey. We would we would respond. And I think the more we do that, the more we're learning how that, that's what it means to be a disciple. Now we're following Christ. Now we are growing in him. And then that's the kind of stuff we would bring back into the gathering when we come together and gather together. We would share that story. We would share that testimony. And that's how we together, the body is built up uh, again as we practice those one another's. But it also is a less a passive, you know, nobody can be passive in those environments. I mean, to, you know, I, right. I can show up to church and if it's any particular Sunday, I could be like, well, I'm exhausted. I'm just going to like chill and listen, sort of, kind of, you know, and uh, you can't quite <laughs> do that if you're at a small house church where you're, you're sort of, I want to say expected to participate because I'm guessing that you don't expect every single person to contribute, you know, equally no. at every single time, of course, but uh, that, that there's a... There's an interactivity where uh, everybody is involved in some way, and you can't really be you can't yeah. be passivist. Sorry to make a bad pun, make a bad pun <laughs> on air there, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in other words, there's an you're right. There's not um, a compulsion to share. We don't go around the t the room like okay, it's your turn. Um, but it, it's more of there's an invitation and yeah. there's a freedom that everyone knows that if they do have something to share, they are absolutely free to do yeah. to do so. Okay. So I, I have one more question about your book, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about the topic of your other book, which is politics, which is just going to be an easy segue for us to talk about politics for a second. So you, you talk about Jesus is the way, the, the, the phrase where Jesus is the way and, in the scripture, and that he is the way to the Father's house, and you have an interesting way of explaining what he's actually telling his disciples. Well, yeah. Um, and again, this this um, my understanding of that passage uh, has shifted over the years. Um, so yeah, you know, most Christians are probably familiar with that passage, right? Where Jesus says, uh, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father, but by me. And I always thought that what Jesus is saying is, you know, like subtitles, subtitles under that is what Jesus is saying is that, uh, he's the only way to get to heaven when you die. But I don't think that's what he's saying at all anymore. When I go back and I reread that whole dialogue, there's a whole dialogue going on there. Um, and what it starts off with Jesus saying, I'm going away and you guys, he says to the disciples and you know where I'm going and you know the way 
to where I'm going. And uh, one of the disciples says, wait, a, no, wait a minute. We don't know where you're going. And so how can we know the way to where you're going? And so Jesus says, well, well, I'm going to the father. And then they say, well, wait a minute. Show us the father. Yes, show us the father. And that'll be enough. And then Jesus says, wait a minute. I've been with you this whole time and you don't know me because if you know me, you know the father. And then he says, right, I am the way. What way? The way to the Father. Where's he going? I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. I know You know where I'm going and know the way. Where are you going? To the Father. And what's the way? I am the way. I am the way to the Father. And, and I am life. I, I'm, uh, there is life in me. Again, abide in me and I abide in you and you will bear much fruit. Uh, without me, you can do nothing. So again, he's just re-emphasizing what he's already said before. And so... Jesus is saying, I am the way to the Father. I'm the way to know the Father, to understand the Father. And again, this is something where I think it shouldn't be controversial because all of the things that I talk about in the book, I'm quoting scriptures that very plainly tell us, and where Jesus says it many times, it says it in John and in Matthew and many other places, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and to whomever the Son chooses to reveal the Father. Uh, John says it very, uh, in the beginning of John, he says this very shocking statement where he says, uh, we're talking about, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, uh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says, no man has ever seen God at any time except for the Son. And he came to reveal the Father to us. Those are radical statements. I think that's, again, what Jesus is saying in, in that passage that we just talked about, where he says, I, I am the way to the Father. I am the way and the truth and the life. He's saying, I am showing you who the Father is. I'm showing you the way to know the Father, the way to come to know the Father. Um, and so that's what I think it's about. It's not about going to heaven when we die. It, he's, Jesus is trying to say, one of the reasons I came was to show you who the Father really is and what the Father's really like. This idea that, you know, God is like Jesus, like Jesus shows us who the Father really is. And that in itself, again, it shouldn't be controversial. It's It's been part of the gospel since day one. But nowadays, if you emphasize that too much, people get uncomfortable. You know, well, what do you mean by that? What do you say? Well, I think it means, I think that's a good question to ask. We should ask, what does that mean? And I think if we start to ask ourselves, what does it really mean to say, as it says in Hebrews, that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, right? There's so many verses like this in Colossians where Paul says that the fullness of the deity lived in bodily form in Christ that Christ is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And now we are filled with that fullness. Like that's an amazing thing. That's a pretty radical thing. And I think it's been lost on us, unfortunately. And that's what I'm trying to emphasize in the book that, that Jesus wants to tell us who the father is and what the father is like. So your book, Jesus Unbound, this is a nice introduction for our audience, Keith. Uh, the subtitle is Liberating the Word of God from the Bible. Uh, so 
Back on episode 10 of our podcast, uh, you did come on to talk about Jesus Untangled, and that topic was a little bit about politics, which is um, which is something that you also engage uh, a, a little bit online. Um, what, what was sort of the central thesis of the book there? Uh, Jesus Untangled? Yeah. Yeah, so that book, yeah, Jesus Untangled, uh, the subtitle is Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. And yeah, I was sort of taking the position that I think Christians really shouldn't be very involved in politics, that actually we should put all of our eggs in the basket again of Christ and his kingdom, that we already have a king. He has, he has a kingdom, and he has an agenda, and he has a plan to change the world and make it a better place. It's called the gospel. And that that is really more fruitful if we will pursue that rather than trying to change uh, society through passing laws and stuff like that, because that doesn't really change anyone's heart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you even have an article um, that that says that the gospel is a highly effective, long-term, world-changing virus designed by the greatest mind in the universe, has the power to make every weapon useless and render every world power powerless. Uh, and so this is like really good Anabaptist stuff. Keith. Um, <laughs> yet you also <laughs> you also talk a lot about other things in politics. I don't know. It just seems like, and again, I mean, you're I'm friendly with you on Facebook, so it's it. I'm picking on you a little bit, but I am a little bit concerned because you know you bring up things like gun control uh, when whenever there's a shooting and whenever there's there's something tragic like that that happens, and it seems as though the the solution is more laws, which kind of runs con- counter to. Uh, what you were just saying earlier. So, I mean, do you do you think of gun control as like, well, we have to pass certain kinds of laws, or I mean, how maybe maybe I'm not giving you due credit. So, how do you think of that kind of issue? If it's not about passing laws, yet you're concerned about gun violence, where do you where do you go with that? Yeah, and you know, Doug, this is this is great. I'm glad you're asking me this stuff because this is actually the kind of stuff that I do wrestle with. It's it's really really um, it's challenging, right? When you get down to some of these some of these things where you know, you stand back. I stand back as somebody who says, okay, I don't vote. I, I don't support any either political, any political party or um, platform or position. I ultimately don't believe that passing laws against things like gun control or abortion or all these other things uh, will change really anything ultimately. But when you have these mass shootings and then you see the reaction of, of people to blame it on anything in the world except guns. And um, when you see that, well, America has more millions and millions of guns compared to any other nation uh, on the planet. And by the way, we also then suffer from more gun violence. Well, duh. Um, (laughs) It's one of these things where it's like, well, I'm not trying when I will post sort of in reaction to some of these, um, some of the gun violence when these things happen and they do happen too often. Um, when I respond to those things, I'm not trying to say, let's pass some laws or let's, let's vote a certain way. What I'm trying to do, and again, and maybe I'm not doing it very well, but what I'm trying to do, I feel like that we in the body of Christ have, we have to speak truth to power. You know what I'm saying? We have to say, this is wrong, or this is insane, or this, uh, this, it's like saying, it's like when Jesus says to uh, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's giving them the option. He's saying to the people of Israel, look, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Uh, if you don't love your enemies, if you continue to want to seek out 
uh, violence and, and rebellion and all these other things, which is what comes natural to us, uh, the, in, the fruit of that is going to be death, right? And so Jesus is wanting to offer them another path in another way. And so what I'm doing when I'm pointing out the fact that, yes, America uh, spends more money on weapons and, uh, you know, the military than the other 14 nations on earth combined, uh, some ridiculous number, eight, you know, 800 billion something, whatever. And almost every one of them are our allies. Oh, yeah. Yes, that's insane. That's the other insane thing. Are we trying to protect ourselves from our allies? Like it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> um, so, so in other words, like when I point that out, or gun control, or or any of these other things, I'm not trying to say let's solve the problem through through politics. I'm just trying to point out the problem. I'm just trying to say look at what you're doing, right? Look look how crazy this is, and look how this will only lead to more war or more destruction or more death, like that's all I'm trying to say. Uh, again, I think ultimately the, the change of heart would be, uh, let's go back to the gun control thing. I would, man, I would just be happy if Christians in America would, would one day decide that they loved the Sermon on the Mount so much that they didn't need to exercise their Second Amendment right to own a gun at all. And they just, you know, got rid of them or took, you know, drive them down to the police station and, you know, trade it for a grocery store card or something. I want them to not want it. I want them to not want to participate in that system. So that's what I'm trying to do. Like for me, yeah. it, it is a fine line. I get it. And I, and I, maybe I could be a better about communicating what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to shine a light on something I think is insane and say, isn't this insane? <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, that's actually not too far from my thoughts, actually. In fact, I wrote about this a couple of years ago. John Piper was being attacked for his stance on uh, being against guns, you know, and his own camp sort of like, you know, kind of attacked him a little bit. And some a lot of Anabaptists, I mean, Kurt Willems and some other people were like ironically going to his defense. And so, uh, you know, I wrote an article. It was fairly lengthy and it basically was about the liberty making uh, a policy, oh, yeah. uh, a change yeah. in their policy, Liberty University change in their policy. And so, you know, my thought was, well, OK, fine. Uh, on one level, I'm like, you know, I can see that there's a right to bear arms so that if there is a dangerous situation happen, the the proverbial bad guy, good guy with a gun is all that can stop the bad guy with the gun. And yet that's not the only scenario in which we need to evaluate. And so why isn't Liberty University also, in addition to, you know, gun classes that they I think they were they were doing, why aren't they also equipping people to do nonviolent uh, resistance or nonviolent uh, de-escalation? There are actual classes that you can take to deal with those kinds of things or even for that matter. I mean, martial arts, I, that, that actually may be something they already do. It's not like it's in conjunction with other ways to deal with violence. It's just like, yeah, this is just the only thing we can come up with. Right. Well, and again, my appeal is is always to Christians. Like if I'm talking to Christians is why don't we start with Jesus? Like like I agree with you. So if Liberty University or any other Christian organization uh, wanted to solve uh, a violence problem, why don't we start with Jesus and say, well, because now what does Jesus say? It's almost like, yeah, that guy, he, what, what did he know, right? He had some crazy ideas. He doesn't understand what we're yeah. going through here. Why aren't more Christian universities teaching peace studies? In fact, why aren't Christian universities the leading places to go to learn peace studies, right? Or not, like you said, nonviolent, uh, how to react nonviolently and how to disarm people nonviolently or mm -hmm. uh, how, to, how to talk someone down from a, from a situation or those kind of things. That would be at least something that was leaning a little bit more towards a Jesus perspective rather than go out yeah. and buy yourself, you know, uh, 
a nine millimeter uh, and, you know, carry it around with you. I don't, I don't get it. Right. And don't do anything else to, to limit the, to reduce your likelihood that you're going to need it. Like, right. it's just like, oh, well, I've got my safety. Like I'm, I'm personally, and you know, we, I, I know you and I may differ this on this, but like, I'm a big second amendment fan. I'm for gun rights, but, or I'm for the rights to bear arms. But as a Christian, I'm, I'm with you. It's like, well, really, is that all we can do? Is that the best we can do? I mean, at the very least go down the road, you know, uh, tackle the problem of violence on two fronts. One, okay, fine. If there's someone there to stop it at the, if it's happening, but like what, ask ourselves the question, what's causing uh, mental illnesses? What's right. causing these things right. from happening? And sometimes it's bad laws and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's, it really is just random. Sometimes it's something that could be prevented. We've seen that in the, in the past year. So yeah, it, it sounds like you and I are a little bit closer on gun control. Maybe not, I can't speak <laughs> for all libertarians, of course. I can only speak of me, we're individualists. So uh, yeah, so I, okay, one more thing. You posted on Twitter recently, it's July 2018 right now. So this is a July 13th, 2018. You said you ran across a quote in your freelance research, quote, in the USA in particular, trust in government has, a, has hit a four-year load at just 33%. There is a widespread perception that political systems are growing more polarized and less effective at meeting social challenges, unquote, of that first tweet. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great. Like, I'm a libertarian. Like, we didn't trust the government in the first place. So we account for at least five to 10% of that, of, of that, of that research. And then you say, with the next sentence is worse, quote, citizens are looking to business to fill the void on critical issues, unquote. What, what did you mean? Why is that worse? <laughs> well, all right. Come on, Keith. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, a couple, a couple of things. Um, so the first part of that quote, it caught my eye because it's like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, People are losing confidence in government because government doesn't really solve problems, especially our government right now. Uh, it is so it's so Amen. broken. Oh, no. my gosh. It is so broken. Um, and I talk about that. This yeah. is entangled yeah. about how technically your vote does not count. Your representatives that you elect do not work for you. And so this is why the second part of the quote to me was was even worse or sad is that who do those who do those politicians really work for? Corporations mega billion dollar corporations who pretty much run our government and have the have lawmakers pass laws that benefit them not the average person and so it was just ironic to me that here are here are you know again this in this survey that was done okay so people understand that the government doesn't work for them and that doesn't help i know let's get the um, let's get corporations to help us you don't understand Corporations are the government. They are they're the reason why the government isn't working for you because it's working for them. And then to go to the to the to the um, corporations and say, oh, you'll make it better. I don't know that I believe that they're that they have any interest in that at all. But anyway, that was just my my reaction to that. To uh, that. OK. Okay, I see. See, I read that and I see, you know, you write citizens or you're quoting citizens are looking to business to fill the void on critical issues. I'm thinking, well, <laughs> duh. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you noticed that Domino's is uh, paving potholes now and it's like um, <laughs> and pretty soon we're going to have Chick-fil-A directing traffic because they're really good yeah, at directing yeah, their yeah. own. You know, like we're, we're going to have like private institutions like fix all the gaps that government is supposed to be doing and apparently doesn't have an obligation to fulfill and all of that. But yeah, you know, on, on the issue of like corporations owning or running the government, I'm not quite sure it's 
I wouldn't say pretty much running the government. I mean, I do understand the they are all in bed with each other in that regard, and it is very bad. And we, ha- you know, there's there's a whole field of study called public choice theory, and it it I would recommend going in, in you know, kind of looking at that because basically what's happening is we have people like you and me who to spend our time lobbying against something that basically would save us about a dollar fifty a year in our own taxes that we think is misspent. The people who are actually lobbying to have that kind of thing happen, uh, it's worth billions or millions or billions to them. And so that that's the gist of public choice theory, as far as I understand it. And it is sad on the one hand. On the other, we actually had a lobbyist on, uh, I think it was the beginning of, of this year, to talk about some of the actual purposes of lobbying. You might want to give that a listen. I don't have a specific retort to any of those <laughs> remarks on my own, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, anyway, so we, you know, we've kind of had that. We've also had uh, Trevor Burrs as a constitutional scholar, and uh, we actually had him on to talk about the gun, the gun control debate yeah. as well. So we're, we're kind of like at time now, and I do want to give you an opportunity to uh, talk about the podcast that you are a host of and just kind of give people, uh, you know, what what's the gist? I listen to your podcast. I haven't listened to every single one of them, but you guys have a lot of fun mm. on your podcast. Yeah. So I do a podcast with two other guys. Um, it's called The Heretic Happy Hour. So it's myself, um, Jamal Javanji, and Matthew DiStefano. They're also, all three of us are authors, and, and we have the same publisher, Choir is our publisher. Uh, and Choir is the, the one that kind of spearheaded the idea, like, hey, let's get the three of you guys together and do a podcast. So, uh, yeah, we have a lot of fun. It's very irreverent. Uh, it is also explicit. Um, so don't listen to it with kids in the car. But, oh my gosh, we have had some amazing guests on. By expl- Yeah, by explicit, you mean you have a swear jar. Yes, uh, yes. And you have sound effects. Yes, <laughs> we have lots of sound effects. <laughs> uh, it's mostly Matt DiStefano who drops the F-bombs, but he does do that. Uh, and then there's a swear jar every time he does that. And so we're going to donate money to charity uh, at the end of the year. And, um, and that's, that's to just have fun. So it's a lot of fun. The three of us don't agree on a lot of things, which is part of what makes it fun. But we don't argue. We're not... So we disagree agreeably. We love one another. We respect one another. We let each other share our ideas. And then if we disagree, we just say, yeah, I don't agree with that. But we move on. Um, but we've had some great guests. We've had Bart Ehrman and um, Richard Rohr. Uh, John Fuglesang was on, which was awesome. Um, you know, we've had just a, lot, a ton of people. I can't even remember all of them now. But we've had some great guests. And um, it's been great. It's been one of the most fun things that I've done in a long time. Yeah. Well, Keith, thanks again for uh, joining us. This you, you actually have the honor at this point in time of being the uh, the guest with the greatest number of appearances on the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Well, thank you so much. I'm honored. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.